So again, this, we're in Ephesians, and I titled this series, Building a Community. And my hope in this series, to begin this new year, is that we grow in our walk with the Lord individually, and that we grow in our unity as a community, as a community here at Renew, and the community that we live in. Uh, It is the same hope, I believe, that Paul had for the churches in the first century when he wrote his epistle, his letter. And then, again, it's going from a personal relationship with God to include a communal relationship with God's people, the church. And as individual believers, we recognize that we have been adopted into God's family. And if that was a sub-theme to this community community, It is the word adoption, and we'll see that throughout uh, several weeks as we spin in Ephesians, this this ideal and understanding of being adopted into God's family. And once we are adopted, then as we grow in God's grace and his mercy, we should become so overwhelmed by his presence that we can't help but express that joy in the community within us, with other believers and at the heart of it, the, the community that is lost and that they can experience firsthand what adoption looks like. Again, that's why Richard talked about the men's ministry and also the women's ministry. That's why we have Life Group. It's, this is a wonderful community here, but yet it, within the smaller communities where you can grow and um, see God at work. And not only that, but just to fall in love with God's church, his bride, which as I was considering that, and I had mentioned that to someone, they had said, so you mean fall in love with ourselves? Well, kind of, but not really, but kind of, because we are part of this community. So my hope here is, is that we just take our time and we're going to work through this. I won't tell you how many weeks we're going to be in, in Ephesians. I've extended it a little bit longer, but don't worry, it won't be as long as... Uh, Many others before us, like Dr. Martin Lord-Jones, I'll talk about him in a moment. But we're going to take our time, we're going to work through it, and just really see this heart, this theme, and see how it's broken down into two parts with little mini themes throughout it. And really, when, when, if, when Paul wrote this letter, even in his letter, he writes this prayer. And this has been my prayer, uh, preparing for this series for the last several weeks, and then really this week. And I've prayed this prayer um, For me, for all of you, and anyone who hears this. So let's just read that prayer that Paul writes. It's in Ephesians 1, and it's 17 through 20. And this is what he writes. In his letter, he writes out a prayer asking God this. Asking God, the glorious Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, to give you spiritual wisdom and insight so that you might grow in your knowledge of God. I pray that your hearts will be flooded with light so that you can understand the confident hope he has given to those he called, his holy people who are his rich and glorious inheritance. I also pray that you will understand the incredible greatness of God's power for us who believe in him. This is the same mighty power that raised Christ from the dead and seated him in the place of honor at God's right hand in the heavenly realms. And to that I say amen. So this first message really, as I mentioned, is to help us understand the background, the historical setting, get our footing in place as we move forward. Ephesians is considered one of the greatest compositions of all time. 
not only in the Bible, but in history, just in history, pen to paper, one of the greatest things that was ever written. That's a statement. People who don't even believe in Christ, don't even believe in the authenticity and inerrancy of the Bible will read this and think, this is the, perhaps one of the greatest things ever written. So just consider that. I, and as I was thinking about that, if I, if I came to you and I said, I read this book that was the greatest book that impacted my life and it's changed my life so much and it's on Amazon, would you go and buy it? Would you listen to the podcast? I mean, you would. I hope you would. And this is what Ephesians has been for so many people for an entire lifetime. Ephesians is one of the books in the Bible that people have spent a lifetime studying just this book alone, so much so that people have debated theology found in this book, and we'll cover that as it comes up. Yet regardless of where one lands on the spectrum of theology, Calvinism, Arminianism, and everything in between, this book has been an encouragement to so many. And even though Ephesians is only... Six chapters long, and you can read the entire book in about 20 minutes, or if you're a bit slower like me, 30 minutes, in one setting, as long as you watch an episode of whatever show you watch. Yet, in this six chapters, Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones' exposition of it takes eight volumes. And that little pamphlet volume, I mean volumes... He has 37 messages on chapter one alone. That's about how long I think I'm going to cover the whole book, okay? 37. And, and I've read and listened to about 14 of them, and they're not all the same. He's not repeating himself over and over and over again. It is so rich. John Calvin has 48 sermons on Ephesians, and that takes up 705 pages. The Puritan William Gurnall, and he wrote The Christian in Complete Armor, takes 1,200 pages to talk about the armor of God. Now, that name may not be familiar to you, but you may recognize him for one of his hymns, Rock of Ages. 1,200 pages on the armor of God. Uh, And at home, I have a little printout of the armor of God, and it's colored in. I mean, that's, it's wild. So as you just consider this, the the amount of time people have taken to study, there's so much here, there's so much depth that I kind of starting to realize why it takes people a lifetime to study. Even the English poet Samuel Coleridge said that the Ephesians is the divinest composition of man. Another writer refers to it as this, the Grand Canyon of Scripture It is breathtakingly beautiful and apparently inexhaustible to the one who wants to take it all in. And that's by the theologian Boyce. And again, Martin Lloyd-Jones, he calls Ephesians the sublimest and the most majestic expression of the gospel. So that's a big tall order here. So I have two prayers outside of the prayer that, that Paul wrote for us. First, pray for me. And pray for anyone who comes up here and preaches um, the word. Any, anyone who comes up and there's a few that will come and share Ephesians with us. And the second one up front is I invite you to read Ephesians before each Sunday. In, in the email that Ashley sends out, 
you'll see the text and how slow we're going through it. I really encourage you to at least Friday when you see the email, Saturday, Sunday morning, whenever, just read what we are going to cover and then pray for me again, okay? Um, I think that if you do that, you will be blessed so much um, because you will, before you, you will see what God has to say before me or anyone attempts to explain it. So quickly, oh, not so quickly, just the background. I just want us to, to try to put ourselves into what was taking place when Paul wrote this epistle. Paul wrote this letter while he was in jail in Rome. And during that peri- period of time, he also wrote Colossians, Philemon, Philippians, all of the jail epistles And Ephesians is unique that there is not a particular crisis that he is handling. Like Colossians, although last week we only covered a little bit of Colossians 3 as we are entering the new year. The church in Colossae was experiencing so much trouble, so much strife that he needed to handle it up front. And specifically, the major problem with that church was the Gnostic movement. Gnostic means knowledge. And people were going around talking about having secret knowledge of Christ. Here, I'll test you to see if you know, have heard anything of this secret knowledge. Ready? Anyone heard of the Da Vinci Code? Okay. I didn't ask you if you read the book. Watch the movie. You've heard of that. What about the Illuminati? What about the eye on the pyramid? Et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Okay. If you think this is new, it's not. This was going all the way back. Uh, Later on, it even got worse with Joseph Smith and others who had this extra revelation or secret knowledge. And really what they were doing is making up stuff. And from what I could see is to make money. Dan Brown, when he wrote the Da Vinci Code, lots of money. So Paul addresses that issue in... Colossians. But Paul wanted to get a head start, it appears, to prepare this new church in Ephesus and the three other churches surrounded that were planted, really church plants of Ephesus. He wanted to specifically warn them and get them ready because like any church, they're going to fall into a trap, or they could potentially fall into a trap of listening to all the outside voices, potentially, specifically, being influenced by the culture. Shocker, right? So just to get your mind around it, the church in Ephesus is in modern-day Turkey. It's right there off the coast. And as you consider that, um, there was a man named Ephorist, and uh, who we read about in Colossians primarily. And he was saved during one of the revivals in Acts. And I know that you remember everything that's ever been taught here. And we did Acts while we were over at Warden's Warehouse. But he was saved in Ephesus. He was a Gentile who had heard the gospel. And he went from this individual saving relationship, personal relationship with Jesus Christ at one of Paul's Uh, revivals whenever he was teaching and then he had such a burden for his home community outside of Ephesus that he left and he started three churches so this layman a Gentile started three churches I'll name the three churches that he started and see if you recognize the name the first one maybe not Herapolis you may not recognize that that one appears not to have lasted more than a couple hundred years Laodicea maybe that's one that you recognize 
in Colossae. He started these churches. And just a side note, Laodicea um, is mentioned in the book of Revelation as one of the seven churches. And just a side note, we're not getting into Revelation. We'll get there when we get there. But when John, who wrote the book of Revelation, when he was writing this about 35 years after this letter by Paul to Ephesus, he, he wrote this, he wrote Revelation. And yes, Revelation is about Christ's return. But in the context of that time, he was talking about churches alive. And just quickly, um, this church, if you remember the seven churches, they, three of them received the praise and rebuke. Smyrna and Philadelphia received only praise and encouragement. And then Sardis and Laodicea only received rebuke. So when John wrote Revelation, Laodicea was only about 30 years old. And they were already being rebuked for being lukewarm, if you remember. So this guy, Ephraim, he's converted over in Ephesus, uh, and he just has this burden. He starts all these churches, and at some point, there's some kind of communication either with him directly, it appears, as we read in Colossians. He's sharing everything that's going on. Paul writes this letter to Colossae, and he said, you know what, let me write this other letter. Because Paul had spent two years in Ephesus, resulting in the gospel spreading throughout the entire region. He would have known the leaders. He would have known people. Uh, it would have been an intimate relationship. Some of the other churches he never visited, but Ephesus is one. So just quickly, just so we can get the context, we're going to turn over to Acts 19. And, and I'm going to pick out some scriptures just to get us going from this church start in Ephesus. I'm going to read from Acts 19. And I'll start with verses 8 through 10. So this is the point where Paul is now, he's moving on, he's, he's starting just to the tail end of his second missionary journey, going into his third missionary journey, and this is what is written in Acts 19, verse 8. Then Paul went to the synagogue and preached boldly for the next three months, arguing persuasively about the kingdom of God. But some became stubborn, rejecting his message, and publicly speaking against the way. So Paul left the synagogue and took the believers with him. Then he held daily discussions at the lecture hall of Tyrannus. This went on for the next two years so that people throughout the province of Asia, both Jews and Greeks, heard the word of the Lord. So quickly, Paul had a similar way whenever he went to a new region. The first thing he did is he went to the Jews. That's the way, the order in which the message went out. He would always go to the synagogue if there was one, and he would preach. And almost every time, if not every time, it would go for a little bit, three months. Some of the Jewish people would believe in Christ as Savior. Others, as it mentions here, argued or became stubborn, rejecting his message publicly, uh, speaking against the way. The way is just a word for Christianity or Christians. So then, as very Paul fashion, he would leave the synagogues and say, okay, you, the Jewish people, although they were the ones that brought in the Messiah, if they don't want to hear the word, if they don't want to believe, I'm going to go to everybody else. And that's where we pick up in verse 10. It says, then he went on for the next two years so that people throughout the province of Asia, both Jews and Greeks, heard the word of the Lord. It's, quick, it's easy to quickly move through that verse 10. New King James NIV, they mentioned that Everyone, all the people throughout the province 
of Asia, both Jews and Greeks, heard the word of the Lord. So imagine this. For two years, Paul rented a room, if you will, a lecture hall in Tyrannus in the middle of the day, and he preached every day. Everybody want to hear a sermon every day? Why are you laughing? Come on. Every day. And the heat of the day, there's no air conditioning, or in our case, no heater. Every day, for two years, so that everyone that heard was so influenced, so emotionally touched by God, that God would come and touch their souls, that they went out and they spread. So who heard the word of God in Asia? Everyone. That's significant. Let's just make it smaller for us. Can you imagine if everyone in Modesto heard the word of God? I think with this size congregation, whatever the number is, I'll count here, whatever the number is, can you imagine that if everyone just took 100 people? Now, now multiply this. So, of course, I had to look up how many people lived in Asia at this time. It looks like roughly 7 million people. But you have two years to get to work, so get to work. So this is what Paul is doing. So the assumption, my assumption is it's not clear except, uh, it's not clear in scripture, but um, our historical references refer to this is when um, he was saved, this uh, Ephras was saved in one of these teachings. So let's go, let's move on, uh, or we're going to be here all day. Acts 19, verse 17 and 20. So he's preaching the word. Um, everything is going well. Um, you can read the uh, seven verses, see what happened there. Uh, but then, verse 17 of Acts 19, the story of what happened spread quickly all through Ephesus. People were being saved um, to Jews and Greeks alike. A solemn fear descended on the city, and the name of the Lord Jesus was greatly honored. Many who became believers confessed their sinful practices. A number of them who had been practicing sorcery brought their incantation books and burned them at a public bonfire. The value of the books were several million dollars. So the message about the Lord spread widely and had a powerful effect. Again, I read from the NLT. If you're reading NIV or New King James, it talks about the silver of the dollar of wage, but that would equal several million dollars. So you see this? There's this great awakening in Ephesus that, Lord Je- that the Lord Jesus was greatly honored and many who became believers confessed their sinful practices. A number of them had been practicing sorcery, brought their incantation books, and burned them on the public fire. Their spell books, their sorcery books, their Ouija boards, whatever you want to call it. They burned them at the value of a million dollars As I was reading this and considering this great awakening, I was considering whenever I surrendered my life to Christ, was there a great loss? Was there something that I had to burn? Well, I don't own anything worth several million dollars just up front. But was there anything that I had to give up? And of course, there's sinful natures, but but in a public bonfire. I do believe if anyone grew up in the 80s and 90s and maybe even before, that whenever you would go away to camp, you would write down your sin and throw it into a bonfire? Anybody? Anybody old? Remember that? No one raising their hand. Okay. Well, when I was little, okay, that's what we did. We'd write down our sin. It was, a, it was this great moment. And it really came from this and uh, this public display of no turning back. I'm giving it up. 
For the wise, or not so wise, I would imagine that there had to have been some kind of temptation for people to say, you know what? I'm going to sell these spell books to my neighbor who's still into witchcraft. But no, a public display, several million dollars. So the message about the Lord spread widely and had a powerful effect. How could it not? People were giving up their old ways, which cost them at the time millions of dollars. Now let's drop down to verse 24. It began with Demetrius. This is when people are pushing back. Demetrius, a silversmith who had a large business manufacturing silver shrines of the Greek goddess Aramatus or Diana. He kept many craftsmen busy. He called them together along with others employed in similar trades and addressed them as follows. Gentlemen, you know that our wealth comes from this business. But as you have seen and heard, this man Paul has persuaded many people that handmade gods aren't really gods at all. And he's done this not only here in Ephesus, but throughout the entire province. Of course, I'm not just talking about the loss of public respect for our business. I'm also concerned that the temple of the great goddess Aramatus will lose its influence and that Artemis or Diana, this magnificent goddess worshipped throughout the province of Asia and all around the world will be robbed of her great prestige. Okay, we'll stop right there and then we'll read the next. So you see what happening? What, what took place, what happened is not only were all the books burnt up, but people were turning away from all of their actual physical idols. And this guy, the silversmith, Demetrius, who probably was the largest one there, made lots and lots of money, is upset that no one's buying his false gods anymore. So he gets everybody up, gets them all upset, and of course he makes it all about... The God, Aramaeus, and just quickly, the, this God this is the one that uh, she supposedly fell from Olympus. She's the one that has, if you see the statue, there's multiple breasts on her because she's the goddess of fertility, of life. And where that rock fell, they built this huge, monstrous temple for her. And then whenever you would go in, you would have to have a brand new, how convenient, idol that you would have to purchase to go in and to worship her. And of course, you know, how convenient his business was right next door. So this is what was taking place. People were no longer going to the temple, and he was losing money. So then he told everybody else that he employed, hey, this isn't right. So let's pick it up, verse 28. At this, their anger boiled, and they began shouting, great is Aramaeus of Ephesus. In Ephesians. So the whole city was filled with confusion. Everyone rushed the amphitheater, dragging along Gaius and Asarchus, who were Paul's traveling companions from Macedonia. So I, I just have a quick picture of modern day Turkey, which was Ephesus at the time, that we'll take a look at real quick. The first one here, I don't remember what order it is, so I have to wait to see. Oh, yeah, you go ahead. That one. That's the one. Thanks, Mark. That's the Great Library. So this was uncovered sometime in 1960s, 70s, and they've built down. This was the Great Library. The library before that is where this big temple to Armaeus was set. And then the next slide is this is 
what we just read. Soon the whole city was filled with confusion and every run rushed to this amphitheater. And the two guys, Gaius and Asuchorus, who were Paul's companions, were pulled in there. If you keep reading, Paul wanted to go in there and dress them because anytime a great number of people got together and they were really mad at him, he used that as opportunity to tell people about Jesus. So if people are mad at you, tell them about Jesus. It works every time. <laughs> Spoiler alert, he dies eventually because of it. But, but honestly... He took that opportunity to go in there, but they wouldn't let him, and they pulled him out, and then they shipped him off. He doesn't get to come back to Ephesus until uh, chapter 22, whenever he's just on the coast. He doesn't have much time. He wants to get back to Jerusalem. He meets with the elders of this church, not this amphitheater. They cry. You can read about it. He doesn't get to spend much time. But in there, they're all arguing about what they're going to do. And then the mayor and everyone says, well, Aramaeus can stand up for herself. And what has he actually done wrong? Relax. It's fine. Everybody says, whew, good thing. Entered the church of Ephesus. So this is, this is the journey that Paul has been on. Now when he tries to go back to Jerusalem... You can read the rest of Acts and you can see he gets arrested. He's in Rome. He's under house arrest. And this is where he's writing the letters. So I give you this background is because all along the way, Paul is starting churches. And really his intention isn't specifically to start a church. That's part of it. It's really to reach as many people as possible. And that's really the goal of any church, I believe. So if anyone asks, what is the vision of Renew Church, it's to do what Scripture says. It's for us who are believers to grow in God's grace and mercy through his word, as Richard had reminded us from Proverbs, sharpening one another. It's also getting into groups, bringing up the next generation. My job is to prepare the saints for the work of the ministry, the work of the gospel, and then go out and reach people. So that's the vision. And next year, you know what the vision is? Same thing. Same thing. Same thing, same thing. Yeah, there's different techniques and different ways to do it, but just being faithful to God's word. And that's what Paul had showed us. That's what the beginning is. And that's where he wrote this letter. And again, uh, I think I mentioned it last week, while he's in Rome, he is chained to a guard. And last week, I, I, I think I told you 23 Roman soldiers were converted over. Um, I think it's actually 32. Uh, according to historical records. So every day, there would be someone who was chained to him for eight hours, and then they would shift over, shift over. He's under house arrest, and he's writing this letter, and this is the letter, one of the letters that he writes, with a man chained to him. I don't even like to be on the phone and have people look at me. But he's sitting there, and he's writing this letter. And he's allowed to have friends as long as he's chained, and he's writing out. And, and did he know that he was writing two-thirds of the New Testament? I don't think so. I think he just wanted to be faithful. It was through God's, God's Spirit, through the Holy Spirit, telling him what to write, and it was his penmanship. As I looked at those, those uh, pictures of those ruins in Ephesus... It's sad to see that, that there's not a church in that area anymore. There is an underground church, I believe, because it's modern-day Turkey. But it's very sobering to consider that, as Renew, we just talked about a little while ago, we're eight years old. I was just thinking, if Christ doesn't return for several hundred years or thousand years or whenever, what will Renew look like? What will any church look like? 
It's just very sobering to consider. Yet, in Ephesians, there are hardly any personal references that Paul writes down. There are some throughout the verses that indicate that Paul knew his readers, but, and we'll go through it as we go in chapters three and four, he doesn't address anyone specific or any problem specifically, like I had mentioned, or congregation. Many scholars believe that Ephesians was a letter intended for all those churches that were started. And if you really want to consider it, if you look at the original text, and there's pictures you can look, where it says Ephesians, it's actually a line, a dotted line. And the assumption is, is whenever the runner would go and bring this letter from Paul, they would just quickly write what church it is. And then that's why, getting ahead of myself, there's probably a little asterisk in chapter 1, verse 1, when it says to the uh, church in Ephesus. There's an asterisk because it wasn't just for Ephesus. But this is his whole mission, is just to make sure that the church is complete. I would challenge, before we move on, I would challenge, if anyone has a problem with the church, not Renew specifically, but church in general, um, I, I would encourage you, or if you know someone, I would encourage you to have them read Ephesians. The importance of community. So Someone said, can you be saved without going to church? Yes, salvation is not based on church. But you do so much better in your walk if you have a church community. And you're all here, so you all know that. But this is what Paul is pushing. So there's, there's two major themes throughout the book of Ephesians. Chapters 1 and 3 um, really is about being saved. And then chapters 4 and 6 is really about the community and, and the response. One theologian pastor broke it down like this, and I'll read his words. Ephesians falls into two halves. In chapters 1 through 3, Paul presents our position in Christ in the heavenly realms, all because of his sovereign grace. The main idea is that God's wisdom, glory, and power are displayed in his internal purpose for the church, made up of both Jews and Gentiles, reconciled in Christ. And within that introduction, he, he, he walks through and he shows how uh, the Father cares for us, the Son redeemed us, and the Holy Spirit seals us. Then in chapter 2, Paul contrasts that we were what we were before we came to Christ. We were dead in our sins. And, and what he has done on the cross by his grace, he has raised us from the dead and seated us with Christ in heaven. And that's what he wants for the Gentile Christians to remember. That formerly, they were left out completely of what the Jewish people were doing. If you remember before Christ, if someone wanted to be in good standings with God, they would have to become Jewish. Now he wants them to know anyone who can come to Christ through Christ to remind that you weren't only just simply alienated from God from his promises, but through Christ you have been restored. And then in chapter 3, Paul begins to mention that he is a prisoner of Christ Jesus for the sake of the Gentiles. I know this is probably getting old, but chapter 3 is probably my favorite. It, it, um, this thought gives, it gives Paul such a concern that in chapter 3 he writes that, his, that those who are concerned that he's in prison may cause some people to doubt that God is really in control, really sovereign. 
But what, what he says, what Paul expresses in chapter 3 is that God is sovereign and he's in control over his trials. So he, he puts together in chapter 3 to show that God had revealed to him the mystery that has concealed in the past, saying, it is such a good thing that I'm in prison because now I have time to write to you. So Paul is just writing that this is a good thing. Bad things that happen is actually a good thing for God's purpose. And then in chapters 4 and 6, Paul shows how comprehending this glorious gift gives purpose to the church and our position under Christ. So we should live in practical godliness to the world. And he goes on to describe what that looks like, and we'll, we'll get in there. And then he closes out the reason why we need, as a family, to stand firm. So we'll talk more about Paul as the series goes on. I just... Quickly, with the remaining time, I just want to revisit verses 1 and 3 and, and break that down. So again, let me read Ephesians 1, 1 through 3 with you. It says, this letter is from Paul. He addresses, he makes sure that everyone knows that it's his penmanship, that it's coming from him. Chosen by the will of God to be the apostle of Christ Jesus. This is referring to whenever his, on his road to uh, Damascus, whenever he is knocked down by God, and probably in most of the pictures we see Paul knocked off a horse. He doesn't say anything about a horse, but it makes for a good story, I guess. So he's writing this, and he's saying, I am writing to God's holy people, or in some translations, saints. And saints, although the Catholic Church, not to pick on them, but to point out the error on this, a saint in the Catholic Church means that someone has done three miracles that's been verified and tested and proved. You most likely have to be dead. And then the church votes on the saint. That, that's when St. Paul, St. So-and-so, and then therefore this saint on your behalf will go forward. Saint really in the original translation from the Greek means people who are set apart set apart and sent, or sent apart to be holy. So if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, congratulations, here's your sainthood. Okay, you're good. So that's what he's writing. So he's saying, I'm writing to God's holy people in Ephesus who are faithful followers of Christ Jesus. He's establishing who he's writing to. He's establishing that this is for a church. Again, I mentioned that there's probably an asterisk to Ephesus. Uh, the thought is that this letter was supposed to go to all the churches. And then he says, may God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ give you grace and peace. All praise to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realms because we are united in Christ. Now, when I read verse 3, I kind of cheated, just so you know. Verse 3 through 14 is actually one long run-on sentence in Greek. It's mind-blowing. And whenever it was translated into English, you know, we don't like run-on sentences. Well, I do. But you don't like run-on sentences, so it's broken down. Because really the emphasis is this is how great God is. I can continue to speak about it. So again, as Paul is pinning this, he's considering and thinking about this brand new church. It's all exciting. You remember, for those of you who started Renew, Renew is eight years old. We've only been here for five years old, so we missed the good years, I guess. I'm just kidding. The good years are yet to come as we honor the past. But 
the first three years setting up every day at Heart Ransom. What a joy, right? It was exciting. I'm not being sarcastic. It was exciting. It probably got old for Sean uh, after, after eight months of it. But that excitement where when, when someone offended you, it was okay because it was new. Or perhaps if you're new to Renew today or you've only been coming, you think this is great. It doesn't matter what's going on. But, you know, after a while, you start to settle in. Then you start noticing some things, how the pastor doesn't do noun and verb agreements very well. <laughs> that when he gets excited, he slurs his words. That if words have more than two syllables, I say that. You're laughing because you've pointed them out. And some of you emailed me. Thank you. But, you know, and then, you know, you may be offended in your life group. Someone says something mean to you. And before you're like, it's okay. This is fun. We eat snacks. And now you don't like them because they didn't text you back. So, so I say that tongue-in-cheek sort of, but I think that happens in every church. I think that happens in every home. Think about whenever uh, you, if for those of you who are married, remember when your wife, when she was only your girlfriend or she wasn't your girlfriend yet, you did everything to convince her that she should be? Come on, guys, you got to help me here. You'd leave flowers. You don't even buy flowers anymore. You know, you just kind of get used to it. And then, ladies, you're not off the hook, too. Before, you just thought he was so dreamy, and now you can't stand him. His socks are gross. <laughs> Humility from last week. Okay, anyways. but So the newness is about to wear off. And Paul knows this. And when, when newness starts to wear off, it can't just be a feeling that you just love one another, that you just love Christ. That's my, that's my concern. God has given us feelings. It's a good thing. We should feel things, but we shouldn't rely on our heart. Our heart is wicked and deceitful. But it has to be more than just a feeling. And before anything starts to happen in this young church, before they're mentioned in Revelation 35-ish years later, Paul is trying to address, you have to have this grace and peace up front and be firm in your relationship with Christ. Because it's going to be difficult. That's why I mentioned chapter 3 is one of my favorites because Paul is writing from a prison. He doesn't write, you should feel sorry for me. God owes me so much. I'm the only one who's reached all these people and look at where I'm at. No, he says, this is a good thing. Because it's 2024 it's already a week old. Some of you have already shared that it's just a copy and paste of last year. So when things get difficult in this new church, and it will, and I'll point those out, we need to have a firm foundation. And that's why in the opening, he's addressing who he is, his authority to share. And he immediately says, may God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ give you grace and peace. Grace and and peace. And I'll talk about that in just one moment. But as we're working through this letter, there's one thing I want uh, you to notice up front to pay attention to. Paul never uses the word born again in any of his letters. That, that, that's a John word. It's a Luke word, kind of. Well, it is. Um, Paul uses other words. It means the same thing. I'm not splitting hairs. Be born again. Okay, just to be clear. But he uses words that describe the same thing, but one of his favorite words is adoption. I love this word. 
I think it connects to what everybody was experiencing at this time. See, Paul was a master to take, second to Christ, of course, to take what was happening in society and using where people were at, using their language to bring them in. He wasn't stuck in the old tradition of being Jewish. He always had to fight that with Peter in Acts. Peter really wanted to be a good Jewish boy who happened to be a Christian. That was Peter's issue for a long, long time. You see the change in his letters later on in 1 Peter. But he wanted to be Jewish first. He wanted his old tradition first. Where Paul was saying, hey, as long as we don't water down the gospel, and Paul never waters down the gospel at all. He hits you straight in the face twice. But what he does is he goes into a society and he sees what's going on with them. And he says, how can I best explain what born again means? And he uses the word adoption. And the reason why is because who owned, who was in charge at this time? The Romans. I didn't give you time to answer. I didn't want you to say somebody else. Romans. And Romans, as far as I can tell, were the first government that started an actual adoption agency, if you will. Adoption was very, very hard, just like it's very, very hard now. You, you would have to have several meetings with a judge. You had to pay a ton of money to adopt someone, even if they were blood. But you had to go through this rigorous background check, this rigorous... Uh, investigation, just quickly, you know the word background check that we use? You know where that comes from? It's, it, they would quite literally ch check the back of someone to see if they were whipped, and that would be called a background because they wanted to see if you were punished, how many times you were punished, and that would determine your standing in society. So when you do a background check, take a look at your back. All right, anyways, there's stuff. If you ever go on Jeopardy, who knows, that might help you. I just found that interesting. Anyways, back to adoption. So the Roman adoption was very hard and very difficult. And it's quite interesting because according to Roman law, a Roman father had the right to kill his natural children without any consequence. So if you're a child in here, welcome to America. You're safe, okay? But at that time, if you disrespected your father, if you ran away from the father, considered the prodigal son, if you disobeyed, if you embarrassed him, he had the right to kill you in public. However, a Roman father could not kill or disinherit an adopted child. Do you feel the weight of that? If you were adopted during this time under the Roman government, you had more right than a natural child. You could not be killed. <laughs> Great. But you also could not be disinherited. That means no matter what you did, that's why the Roman father, background check and all, had to pay all this money to go before the judge, and sometimes several judges pay a lot of fee, lots of fees in order to do it, to be adopted. And once you were adopted, you were adopted forever. Why do you think Paul used the word adoption? He was taking what society knew as adoption and saying, this is so much better with a heavenly father. 
you are adopted. You are brought in. That's where he starts his letter. That's why since you're adopted, this grace and this peace that Christ is offering you, you should feel this grace and peace because you should feel secure that your heavenly father loves you. Going back to Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones in one of his 46 or whatever number it was, he said this, grace is the beginning of our faith and peace is the end of our faith. And I couldn't agree more. Grace is the beginning, this unmerited, we didn't earn it. it. By grace alone we are saved. But peace comes to the end of our faith, meaning that once we are accepted by Christ, there should be peace because of our walk with Christ. And we will see that Paul continues to talk about, yes, we are saved by grace, but we should be doing something about it. Enter the community. Yet how lightly we tend to drop peace and grace off of our tongues without even considering what they mean. I know I do. Again, grace is the beginning of our faith and peace is the end of our faith. And, and grace is God's unmerited favor. We deserve his judgment, but he saved us and he's blessed us. Peace with the holy God is the basic need of every sinner, of every person. And we can't appease or we can't clean ourselves. It's only by him through Christ's sacrifice. Our good deeds don't get us in because they can't erase the stain of our sin. But as Paul points out later in Ephesians 2, he himself is our peace. Christ reconciled us to God. He gives us peace within our hearts, even in the midst of trials, and he reconciles us to one another. You must forgive one another. So when we experience God's grace at the cross, instead of being our judge, God becomes our father, our adopted father, and Jesus Christ becomes our Lord. And then rather than running from God because we want to hide our sins, because we fear his judgment, we can draw near to God with our hearts washed clean, and there's peace there. So as one theologian wrote, instead of proudly running our own lives to promote our own interests, we now submit gladly to Jesus as Lord and Master, seeking to do his will, beginning with forgiveness. Because we are adopted. So that's the intro to Ephesians. So again, my, my prayer is that prayer that Paul prayed at the very beginning or towards the beginning in Ephesians 1, and I'm going to read that just to close this out. Ephesians 1, 17 through 20. Paul is asking God, the glorious Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, to give you spiritual wisdom and insight so that you might grow in your knowledge of God. I pray that your hearts will be flooded with light so that you can understand the confident hope he has given to those he called his holy people who are his riches and glorious inheritance. I also pray that you will understand the incredible greatness of God's power for us who believe in him. This is the same mighty power that raised Christ from the dead and seated him in the place of honor at God's right hand in the heavenly realms. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for the gift of adoption. Thank you for the context of what that meant when Paul wrote this 
with a Roman government in the context that it means to us now. As some here have been adopted here on earth or has adopted and knows what that means. And yet all of us who believe in Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior are adopted. And the joy that we have and the grace and the peace that leads us to the end, Lord, that we can rest assured that you are good. So Lord, as we not even scratch the surface, but perhaps maybe just landed on the surface, Lord, we just pray for this series. We thank you for this gift. We thank you for your Holy Spirit that speaks to us, Lord. And Lord, I pray for anyone in here who, who feels far from you, either because they have not given their life over to you, or it's been a long time, or fear of sin, or anything in between, Lord. I just pray that today can be the day, that this season, this new year, can be the time that we commit our lives to you. Lord, not that you just save us for heaven, but you save us to live a life that glorifies you. Will you help us take the salvation of an individual relationship with you and apply it in our lives to respond for the community? And Lord, if there's any unforgiveness in here, will you help us forgive as you have forgiven us, Lord? And Just thank you for this community. Thank you for every new church. Thank you for the other churches who praise your name. Thank you for your grace and your mercy. So Lord, as we sing a few more songs to you, will you just uh, take it and bring yourself glory. You deserve so much more than what we could ever offer, yet you receive our praises. So Lord, as we lift you up high, we just thank you. And we just pray that... um, This is a new season in which our focus and our hearts are on you. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen.